It's going to be Acts chapter 13, verses 6 to 12, for a sermon I've entitled Power Encounters. And this is what it says. When they, meaning Paul and Barnabas, had gone through the whole island as far as Paphras, they found a magician, a Jewish false prophet, whose name was Bar-Jesus, who was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence. This man summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elamus, the magician, for that's what his name is, translated, was opposing them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who's also known as Paul, fixed his eye, fixed, or filled with the Holy Spirit, fixed his gaze on him and said, You are full of all deceit and fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness. Will you not cease to make crooked the straight way of the Lord? Now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and will not see the sun for a time. And immediately a mist and a darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking those who would lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had happened, being amazed at the teaching of the Lord. You know, when missionaries enter into a new area, they face a number of barriers. First of all, you have the issue of language. I mean, if you've ever tried to learn a new language, you know how difficult that can be. I mean, it's one thing to be a tourist and pick up enough phrases to work your way through the marketplace and restaurants, but it's another thing to master language well enough to communicate biblical truth to those for whom such concepts seem foreign. Of course, the missionaries also want to translate the Bible into the local dialect, but what if they don't even possess a written language? Some missionaries have to design an alphabet, translate the Bible into the newly invented script, and then teach the people how to read before they can read the Bibles for themselves. The Russians use the Cyrillic alphabet. It's called that because Cyril of Byzantium and his brother Methodius came up with it when they were trying to translate the Bible into the Bulgarian language. You also have the fact that people that you go to already have their own religions, ones they're not eager to give up. I mean, when they first hear about the true God and his son Jesus Christ, they don't usually say, wow, I guess we and our ancestors were all wrong. Now that we've heard the truth, we definitely are going to give up our false ideas. People steeped in idolatry don't readily relinquish their idols. Instead, they cling to them tightly. But have you ever thought about how absurd idolatry is? I mean, you go into the woods, you cut down a tree, cut off its branches, take a log back, you carve it into the image of an animal or a bird or a snake, and then afterwards you throw yourself down before it and say, save me! That's so why the Bible, in so many places, mocks and ridicules those who worship idols. They're worshiping a God of their own making. Now, it's easy for us to laugh at such folly and to think that those idol worshipers are just gullible rubes imagining that their man-made idols have any power to do any good or evil towards them. But you know, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10.20 that those who sacrifice to idols are actually sacrificing to demons. Behind the wood and stone figures are evil spirits who use the idols to deceive and enslave the people. Paul reminds us in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. When they go into a new area steeped in idolatry, sometimes the missionaries engage in what they call a power encounter. They throw down the gauntlet, as it were, and openly challenge the pagan priests or witch doctors to a spiritual duel, not so much man against man, but God, true God, against their gods, the false gods, kind of like Elijah did with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. Now, I can give you an example of this from church history. 
In the early 1700s, or 700s, there was a teacher from England, a Bible scholar named Boniface, who worked as a missionary among the German tribes. Now initially, he had little success in his evangelistic efforts. People were interested, some were, in the message, but they were afraid to give up their religion. I mean, what will our God Thor do to us if we don't worship him? Well, Boniface decided to do something drastic. The German tribe that he worked among had a giant sacred oak that was dedicated to Thor. He called, it was called the Donner Tree. Well, Boniface boldly announced that he intended to cut it down. And so when the day came, people were gathered in a great crowd to witness this power encounter. They were absolutely certain that Thor, the god of thunder, would strike down Boniface for his audacity. Well, standing before the tree, Boniface grabbed his axe and he gave that tree 40 whacks. And then, with a final swing, one that would have made Paul Bunyan proud, that giant oak began to creak and then it snapped and came down with a mighty crash. Wide-eyed, the German tribesmen waited, waited for Thor to act. But just as it happened on Mount Carmel, there was no response. No one answered. No one paid any attention. Their god, Thor, was a figment of their imaginations and the demon who stood behind him had no power over the man of God. Well, here in this part of the book of Acts, we have another story, a power encounter. This one between the Apostle Paul and a sorcerer named Elamus. So today, to build your confidence in the all-powerful God, I want us to see how the Holy Spirit, through his servant Paul, took down Elamus, the servant of Satan. So why don't we pray and get into the text. Father God, I pray for grace and mercy as we look at this. Open up our eyes to the reality of spiritual warfare, but also to have confidence in the power of the Holy Spirit as he guides us through all of it. So bless us now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there's three things we want to consider as we look at this text. First of all is the situation. The situation, that's verses 6 to 8. Next, the confrontation, and that's verse 9 to 11a, the first part of 11. And finally, the results... And that's 11b to 12. So the situation. By the way, you ever been to a funeral where they list the survivors like the kids and their spouses? But sometimes there'll be someone on there, maybe a brother or, or a son, and we'll call him Trevor, and it, and it mentions his special friend, Tiffany. Now often what that means is they're living together, but they're not married. And today there's a lot of people that don't even have relationships. Instead, they have what's called situationships. According to the Choose Therapy website, a situationship is a romantic relationship that lacks clear definitions or commitment. It's characterized by emotional intimacy, spending time together, often involves physical and sexual components. However, partners won't define their relationships, place it into a category, or set clear boundaries. A situationship can cause uncertainty, anxiety, and confusion about the uh, future of the relationship. In other words, the guy's sleeping with the woman he has no commitment to, and he's certainly not intending on marrying her. Well, here we don't have a situationship, but a situation which the Oxford Dictionary defines as a set of circumstances in which one finds oneself. Now Luke tells us of the situation that Paul was in when this power encounter took place. Look what it says again in verse 6. It says, When he had gone through the whole island, or when they had gone through the whole island, as far as Paphos, uh, they found a magician a Jewish false prophet whose name was Bar-Jesus, who was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence. Now, Paul and Barnabas were working their way across the island of Cyprus, and they ended up on the other side in a city called Paphos. And we're introduced to a couple of people here, the proconsul Sergius Paulus, who, by the way, that, that position was either appointed by the Roman Senate or the emperor. 
it's the equivalent of like a governor. And interestingly, they found mention of this man outside of the Bible in some of the Roman records. Well, Luke tells us here that this proconsul was a man of intelligence. You've heard of IQ tests, right? That stands for intelligence quotient. It's a test that measures your basic intelligence across a broad spectrum of things, not just specific knowledge in a given area. Well, the average IQ score for Americans is 98. But did you know that score varies from state to state? Which state do you suppose has the highest or the lowest? Well, the highest is in Massachusetts with an average of 104.3, followed by New Hampshire with 104.2. Minnesota is fifth with 103. Wisconsin, on the other hand, ranks 10th. Hmm. I always hear you guys talking about those crazy Minnesota drivers. They may be crazy, but evidently they're smarter than we are. Well, at the bottom are California, Mississippi, and Louisiana, all with scores of 95 or 94. And according to the Guinness World uh, Book of uh, Records, the person living today who has the highest IQ is Marilyn Savant, who has an IQ of 228. Now, I don't know what Sergius Paulus' IQ was, but Luke says he was a very sharp man. And I think that's what makes it a little surprising that he had in his court and evidently was employing a magician, a Jewish false prophet, whose name was Bar-Jesus. Now, when you think of a magician, we tend to think of a guy wearing a black suit with a red cape and a top hat that he pulls a rabbit out of, but that's not the idea here. Luke used the Greek word magos, from which we get the English word magic or magi. Remember, it was the magi who came looking for the Messiah and found him in Bethlehem. Well, the magi originally were... Um, a priest class from the area of Babylonia or Persia. But by the time of the New Testament, the connotation was similar to what we would have of gypsies today. You know, gypsies live throughout the eastern part of Europe. They're usually involved in uh, fortune-telling and sometimes in to witchcraft. By the way, who are some of the more famous fortune-tellers of our time? Well, two come to my mind. Sylvia Brown. She died a few years ago. And even more so, Jean Dixon. Remember that name? 1956, she predicted that the next president in 1960 would be a Democrat and that he would either be assassinated or die in office. Well, of course, JFK was a Democrat. He was elected, and three years later, he was assassinated. But she didn't get all of her predictions right. She also said the Russians would be the first to put a man on the moon and that World War II would break out in 1958. She also prophesied that, quote, a child born somewhere in the Middle East shortly after 7 a.m. Eastern Standard Time on February 5th, 1962, will revolutionize the world. Before the end of 1999, he will bring together all mankind in one all-embracing faith. This will be the foundation of a new Christianity with every sect and creed united through this man who will walk among the people to spread the wisdom of the almighty power. Now, Dixon claimed that her power of prophecy was from God, but she also used a crystal ball that she would stare into. On one occasion, she said that uh, she was sleeping, and in the middle of the night, a snake came into her room, climbed up on her bed, and began to communicate with her. Now, folks, if you know anything about the Bible, you know that women should not listen to talking snakes. It doesn't end well. By the way, when she died, right before she died, she said, I saw that one coming. Well, that's not tough. Now, a lot of these psychics and fortune tellers are nothing more than flim-flam artists that are conning gullible people. But I don't think we can rule out and discount 
the possibility that there's real power going on at times, demonic power, behind these tricks. Do you remember that when Moses threw down his staff and it turned into a serpent, a snake, that Janus and Jambres, the court magicians of Pharaoh, did the same thing? Paul tells us of the Antichrist in 2 Thessalonians 2, 7-10. It says, For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, and he who restrains him will do so until he's removed. Listen to this. Then the lawless one, he's talking about the Antichrist, will be revealed, whom the Lord will eliminate with the breath of his um, um, mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. This is the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan with power and false signs and wonders and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not accept the love of the truth so as to be saved. Let me give you one bizarre phenomena that you may not be familiar with. Have you ever heard of spontaneous human combustion? There's hundreds of recorded cases of this happening. Gary North, in his book on Holy Spirits, tells of one such case. On September 20th, 1938, on a crowded dance floor in Clemsford, England, without warning, a woman suddenly burst into flames. Not her clothes, but her body. Her flesh emitted blue flames, indicating tremendous heat. Some around her tried to put out the flames, but to no avail. Within minutes, there was nothing left but ashes. That same year, in Northfork Broads, England, a woman and her husband and children were paddling in a boat. She suddenly caught fire and was rapidly reduced to a pile of ashes before her horrified family members. The boat was undamaged, and the other family members were not affected by the heat. In a number of these cases, nothing around the person caught fire. The body alone was consumed by flames. Now, of course... They can't deny these occurrences, so doctors and scientists try to give some kind of natural explanation for it. They say, well, the, the person drank too much alcohol or dropped a lit, lit cigarette on herself or was sitting too close to a heater. But did you know that to cremate a body, it takes two to three hours and at a temperature of 1,500 to 2,000 degrees? And yet some of these victims were reduced to ashes in a matter of a couple minutes. Maybe there is no naturalistic explanation for this phenomena. Maybe it's supernatural. Demonic. Well, we don't know whether Elamis the magician was more of a con artist or a real sorcerer, demonically empowered, but one way or another he was having an influence over the proconsul Sergius Paulus. That makes me think of Tsar Nicholas II. His son suffered from hemophilia, and he was desperate to find someone to help him. His wife sought out a holy man named Gregory um, Rasputin. Now, Rasputin had abandoned his wife and his children to become a traveling mystic. And he first became popular with the upper, upper class nobility and became influential in spiritism and seances and communicating with the dead. Now, as far as his looks, he was just creepy. He had dark eyes and greasy black scraggly hair. The Tsar didn't really like him, but his wife thought that he was the only man who could save their son. So he had enormous psychological power and influence over the royal family and some of the nobles for who he conducted seances. He was morally corrupt. He accepted bribes. He had affairs with a number of women from the nobility, and he was accused of rape, and he was involved with the uh, Tsar's daughters. He was a grand manipulator. Well, a group of the nobles became convinced that Rasputin was not only a threat to the royal family, but to the Russian Empire, so they decided to kill him. The first attempt was at a dinner party where they fed him some cakes laced with cyanide. He ate them, but nothing happened. Then he drank three glasses of poisoned wine, but he was still fine. Eventually, one of the conspirators saw, shot him right in the chest. 
body lies on the floor. They dragged it down into the basement. But then uh, about an hour later, Prince Yusupov went down into the basement to look at Rasputin's body. And as he was bending over to look at it, Rasputin grabbed him. He ran upstairs with Rasputin chasing him out into the back courtyard where another one of the officers shot him right in the head. And they dumped his body in a river. Now evidently, Elamis played a similar role to the proconsul that Rasputin played to the Tsar. But what made it even more despicable was the fact that this guy was not an idol-worshipping pagan, but rather a Jew. But did you know that Jewish people have been involved with a, a cult that's pretty common over the centuries? I came across a podcast recently. It's called Jew Witch. Jew Witch. Some of the titles of the episodes were these. Giant Frogs and Magical Matzah. The Book of Shadows. And Jewish Toilet Demons. That's a sad state of affair when one of the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is more interested in toilet demons than the God of Israel. That brings us to our second point, though, the confrontation. This is verses 7 to 11a. <coughs> it says this, But this man, meaning the proconsul, summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. Now, the people in Isaiah's day, they were living in scary times with wars and rumors of wars. <coughs> Conspiracy theories were running rampant. So some of the people were going to fortune tellers then and mediums to try to get insight into what was going on. And so God sent a rebuke to them through the prophet Isaiah saying this. In Isaiah 8, 19 and 20, he said, When they say, consult mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter, should a people not consult their God? Should they consult the dead on behalf of the living? To the law and the testimony, if they don't speak according to this word, it's because they have no dawn. I have to tell you, it's not unusual for people in power to look to occult practitioners to give them advice. Hillary Clinton had a medium who channeled the spirit of Eleanor Roosevelt for her. Nancy Reagan used to consult an astrologer before she planned out the president's schedule. That Sergius Paulus sought advice from a court magician isn't surprising, but that he would want to hear the word of God is quite surprising. And I would say that shows him as rather intelligent, doesn't it? It says in Proverbs 9.10, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. But anywhere the truth is proclaimed, the devil will raise up people to oppose it, and that's what happened here. Look what it says. But Elamus the magician, for that's what his name is translated, was opposing them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Because think about it, if the proconsul hears the gospel, he might get saved. And if he gets saved, he might repent, including repenting of his sin of employing a sorcerer, and Elamus would be out of a job, and he had a mortgage to pay. So he tries to keep the proconsul from listening to the truth. Verse 9 says, oh, But Paul who's also known as, or Saul, who's also known as Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, fixed his gaze upon him and said, you who are full of all deceit and fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of righteousness, will you cease, not cease, to make crooked the straight way of the Lord? Now, now listen to Paul's white-hot, blistering words here. There's a scathing denunciation, a sharp rebuke with a fierce tongue lashing. And that wasn't something that he said and posted on Twitter. It's something that he said face-to-face to the man. Basically saying, you low, down, lying, no good scallywag, you dog-faced pony soldier. <laughs> Elamus, the last name, his last name was Bar-Jesus, which means son of salvation, but Saul accused him of being the son of the devil. 
But you know, we're not supposed to talk to people like that, right? I mean, as Christians, aren't we supposed to try to dialogue and be understanding of different perspectives? Aren't we supposed to be winsome in our approach and gentle like Jesus, who accepted everybody just as they were? I, you know, like when he called the religious leaders hypocrites who travel over land and sea to make one convert. And when they do make him a convert, they turn him into twice the son of hell that you are. He called them whitewashed tombs, serpents, brood of vipers, and demanded that they tell him how they ever thought they were going to escape the flames of hell. Back in 2014, James Dobson used to be the head of Focus on the Family. He spoke at the National Day of Prayer event that's held annually in the Capitol. Well, the event is a non-partisan, non-political event, but in his address, Dobson brought up the issue of abortion and President Obama's policies regarding it. He said this, quote, Before, oh, he's talking about Obama, was elected, he made it very clear that he wanted to be the abortion president. He didn't make any bones about it, that this is something that he was really going to promote and support. And he has done that. And in a sense, he is the abortion president. But even more than being the abortion president, this is me talking now, um, he put in place a health care act that would have required all companies and organizations, including Christian organizations, to provide funds for abortions, thus making Christians complicit in the act. So towards the end of the speech, Dobson said this, it would be a violation of my deepest uh, held convictions to disobey what I consider to be the principles of Scripture. The Creator will not hold us guiltless if we turn a deaf ear to the cries of His innocent babies. So come and get me if you must, Mr. President. I will not bow before your wicked regulations. Now, of course, the press went crazy. And I have to tell you, I was stunned myself because Dobson was so blunt and so firm, but especially in the fact that he called it wicked. We almost never hear that from politicians anymore. Well... This was not just Paul going off on this man because we're told that he was filled with the Holy Spirit when this happened. This was a power encounter between the Holy Spirit and Satan. And the power of the Spirit will be demonstrated not only in words, but also in deeds. For look at what it goes on to say in verse 11. Now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and not see the sun for a time. Now this brings us to our last point, the result. The results. You know, when companies uh, sell products, they often put out disclaimers you know, on their advertisements, things that say past performance do not guarantee future results or results may vary. Well, here in the book of Acts, we've already seen past performances of the Holy Spirit's power as he's changed hearts through the preaching of the gospel or taken lives like Ananias and Sapphira when they lied to him or Herod being eaten out by worms as a punishment for martyring James. So yes, the future results are indeed guaranteed, but the results of this power encounter also vary. Because look, at the effects were different for Elamus than they were for Sergius Paulus. Of Elamus, we read this, and immediately a mist and a darkness fell on him, and he went about seeking those who would lead him by hand. I'm blind! I'm blind! Somebody help me! I can't see! Amazing power, how sad the sound that cursed a wretch like me. I once had 20-20 vision, but now I cannot see. When the Holy Spirit struck down Herod, he was eaten up by worms and he died a week later. Elamus got off easy by comparison. Matter of fact, he got off quite lightly because Paul told him that he would be blind and not see the sun for a time. Did he repent later and regain his sight? Or did he double down in his self-deception? We don't know. I mean, when he was able to see the sun again, did he finally 
see the light? Well, we don't know what happened to Helaman spiritually, but we do know what the results were for Sergius Paulus. Luke tells us that then the proconsul believed when he saw what had happened, being amazed at the teaching of the Lord. The end result of this power encounter between Paul and Elamus, ultimately between the Holy Spirit and Satan, was that the Roman official came to trust Christ. At that same time, the Holy Spirit took away the physical sight of Elamus. He granted spiritual sight to Sergius Paulus. He closed the eyes of a sorcerer, but he opened the eyes of a proconsul. As it says in 2 Corinthians 4, 3 to 6, and even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the eyes of the unbelieving, so they do not see the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, which is, who is the image of Christ, uh, God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord and ourselves as his bondservants on account of Jesus. For God who said, Let uh, light shall shine out into the darkness, is the one who has shown into our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. But notice what he says that he was amazed by. It wasn't the fact that he saw his magician now stumbling around in the dark. No, it says that he was amazed at the teachings of the Lord. You know, it's impressive, but not really amazing to me that the creator who made the human eye could make it stop working for someone. But what is stunningly amazing is that the holy God, who's just, would forgive the sins of a man like Sergius Paulus, or men and women, or boys and girls, like us. Now, if God just forgave us, that in itself would be amazing. But it's how he went about saving us. By sending his son in human form to live a perfect life and afterwards to offer up that life as a sacrifice for sins. So that those who trusted him would have their sins paid as Jesus took the punishment for those sins and then imputed his righteousness to our account so we can stand justified before holy God. And the proof that that, ex that sacrifice was accepted was the fact that he raised him from the dead three days later, defeating death not only for Jesus, but for his followers. Does that teaching amaze you? I mean, has the light shone into your heart so that you see Jesus as your only hope and the treasure that he is? If not, you need a power encounter from the Holy Spirit. Ask him to reveal Christ to you. Just ask. Just ask. Let's pray. Our Father in God, this is a dramatic story. One who was seeing became blind and one who was blind became seeing. And yet that's what happens with every person who's saved. They once were lost, now are found, were blind, but now they see. Lord, we want you to do that for us. For the ones here who don't know you, that you'd open up their eyes. And for those of us who do know you, that we would get this gospel message out to other people because it's the only hope they have. It's the only way they'll see the truth so as to be saved. So we thank you for stories like this which demonstrate your power. Um, not only to bring judgment on your enemies, but to bring grace to your people. So bless us now to that end, for we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Let's just 413? We're going to sing 413.